Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 91. My goal tonight is to get through 91, 92, and 93 and spend most of our time really in the New Testament dealing with the subject of spiritual warfare. All right, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and He is my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. Whenever a person is in need of a fortress, or if he's in need of refuge, it means he's taking cover from something and needs protection from something. The question is, who do we need protection from, and why do we need this refuge? And the Lord is the only one that can be that refuge. So the question I'll put forth is, from who? And the answer is in verse 3. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. My side margin here says a trap set for birds. In other words, somebody who is laying in wait, trying to trip you up, and he is the one that um, we're going to see here a couple times uh, tonight. I think I'll read the whole psalm and then come back and put it all together. And it'll make sense because part of this is quoted, um, will be our text on Sunday morning. So let's finish it, and I'll come back, and then we'll go to the New Testament. <clears throat> Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. And he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your habitation. All right, I'm going to stop there. And I'll come back and then we'll go into the rest of this because beginning with verse 10 is actually something that's quoted in Luke's gospel. But um, I'd like you to turn to um, Matthew chapter 13 in the New Testament. Matthew 13. The parables, especially the parable of the soils, describe what happens uh, when a person hears the word of God for the first time. And I remember listening to Billy Graham in 1970 and other people telling me about the Lord. And uh, that's when the battle began. And um, as we look at this parable here, Jesus is um, speaking to the multitudes. And he tells this parable. Verse 3 says, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some of the seed, and it fell by the wayside, and then the birds came and devoured them. We have them now going from one set of soil to the next, and then some fell on the stony places where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because they had no depth of of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among the thorns. Now, this is the third section. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. But the last one, 
These seeds fell on good ground, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, then let him hear. Disciples came to him and said, Lord, what in the world are you talking about? Would you explain the meaning of what you just said? And so picking it up, first of all, I want you to go back to verse 4, and where it says the birds. He sowed some among the wayside, and it said the birds came and devoured them. As Jesus explains the parable in verse 19, Let's pick it, pick it up in verse 18. He says, now he's going to explain it to his disciples. He says, therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, it says, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, and this is he who has received the seed by the wayside. All, all of a sudden, the bird, back in verse, verse 4, is being explained more fully in verse 19. It's the fowler. And um, what, what point I'm going to make this evening is that it seems that the main attack in spiritual warfare comes at the very beginning when the foundation is being laid. And this will make more sense as we make our way through Psalm uh, 91. But here, as Jesus explains, when the word of God is given out or witnessing, whatever you want to call it, then comes the spiritual warfare. And who is it involved? Well, it would be the fowler, the one who's trying to trip you up somehow, some way. You, you, um, you come back and, and uh, um, your boyfriend or girlfriend says, look, you become a Christian, I'm out of here. Or you go home and you tell your husband or your wife that your life has changed and you're living a whole new lifestyle. And they, they give you the ultimatum. And they say, if you become one of those holy rollers, I'm out of here. And all of a sudden, they have to make that decision, uh, that choice and that decision. And the one that we're told here that's behind it all, putting the pressure on, is none other than the devil himself. All right. Now, a rule in interpreting um, the parables. I'm going to throw a big theological word out there. It's called expositional constancy. And basically what that means is if, the bird represents the devil in one parable, then it will be consistent if birds are mentioned again, it will will be constant that it's always applying to Lucifer or the devil. In the same chapter, if you go to verse 31, we're in a different parable now. This parable is the parable of the mustard seed. And it's only two verses long, and it's really misunderstood, and a lot of commentaries have it wrong. And Jesus says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, and when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, many a commentary will tell you that the seed is the word of God, it's sown into the world, and it covers the whole world, and that's how the gospel is going to go forth. The problem is, if you hold to the rule of thumb of expositional constancy, we got a problem if this is a church in the gospel because we have birds in its branches. First of all, mustard seeds don't grow into big trees. All you gals who make your mustard dill and stuff like that, um, how big is it? It's just a small plant. 
In other words, what we have here is unnatural growth. And to make it worse, if this is the church, you have uh, birds, which represents uh, the devil himself and demons that are in it. So what we have here is something unnatural. The Lord is saying that what's going to happen in time is that in church history, there's going to be an unnatural growth that takes place. And with that, um, what the Lord intended for the church, it grows into something completely that he never wanted. Um, He wants the, the local church to be geared around Bible study, fellowship, and prayer. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? He said, and that's doable. He says, if you'll concentrate on that, he says, and you just maintain that over the long haul, you'll grow in faith, you'll grow in knowledge of the word, you'll become stable, and it'll be a very, very natural growth. And what's happening here is something that happened that actually is unnatural. Now, the reason I came here first is because the rest of Psalm 91 is going to deal with the Lord dealing with uh, spiritual warfare with the devil himself. To do that, I need to take you back to um, our psalm. So let's go back to Psalm 91. Pick it up in verse 10 now. So why do we need a refuge from the storm? That hiding place that we can go to? Because uh, we're, according to uh, Ephesians 6, in a war that we need to have our spiritual war, our, our spiritual armor on. And we find it again in verse 10. Um, it says, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near you, dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. They shall bear you up with their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. All right, let's go here. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, Let's go to the New Testament to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. And the reason we're only going to get through three, I hope hope we get through even the three, is I want to take my time going through this. In Luke chapter 4, we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist in verse 1. And um, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Lord. He's driven into the wilderness. And then he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. Now, one of the main points that I want to get to here. If you go down to verse 13, after the temptation is over, it says he departed from him until an opportune time. So it wasn't just uh, spiritual warfare once with the devil. He had this period of time of 40 days. Well, here's my point. This was Satan attacking as soon as the Lord began his ministry. When did he attack that new believer who heard the word? As soon as the word was in his ear, he tried to get some way to get it out, lest he'd be saved. So here we have the enemy, right at the very beginning, trying to undo the purpose for Jesus' coming. 
The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That was the first temptation. Second temptation gets into um, the God of this world. That's why he's called the God of this world. He took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Somehow he opened up the spiritual dimension and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the devil said to him, I have the authority. I will give it to you in their glory for this has been delivered to me. Wait a second. I thought God made this world. Yeah, he did. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they sinned, they forfeited their right to the garden were was expelled, and it was handed over to Lucifer. In Revelation chapter 5, when Jesus goes up to the throne and takes a scroll out of the Father's hands, all heaven erupts with, with uh, joy. Because what he's actually taking back is the title deed which, which he purchased back on Calvary's cross. He's reclaiming it. He hasn't claimed it yet. But at this time, the devil is offering it to him, and he says, all you have to do is worship before me, and it's yours. You won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to uh, fulfill your mission. The Lord rebukes him, says, get behind me, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. All right, this brings us now to Psalm 91. This is the fourth time. He takes him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Here, Lucifer is quoting Psalm 91 to the Lord, knowing that the Psalm 91 is about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the passage that the devil quoted, and it's interesting that Satan knew this Psalm applied to the Lord. During the Lord's temptation, Satan said, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep thee. This statement is recorded in Luke. It seems the devil quoted scripture for his purposes. Well, I don't think he can quote it, but he can misquote it, and that's exactly what he does here. But you've got to be reading the psalm very, very carefully because what he leaves out that's in Psalm 91 that is not in Luke chapter 4 is in all his ways. He left those words out. So he's twisting the scriptures, and um, he leaves out takes away from the word of God. And uh, there's a big warning in the book of Revelation, make sure no man adds to or takes away from. Here Satan is taking it away and telling, uh, changing it in this. And in so doing, um, the Lord answers back to him. He said, it's also been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. All right, what's your point, Dwight? Well, spiritual warfare at the beginning of a person's walk, at the beginning of a person's ministry. He's there, he's a fowler, and uh, the only refuge that we really have 
is in the name of Jesus, you know, and having that authority over him. We're told greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But I don't want to take the devil on one-on-one. No way. I want the Lord. <laughs> I want the Lord between me and him. In Jude, we read that uh, even Michael the archangel didn't bring a railing accusation against the devil when they were disputing about the body of Moses, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And um, so we find in, in uh, Psalm 91, one of my goals as we teach through the Bible is to show prophecy. And here, the devil himself actually quotes verbatim, except leaving out in all your ways. He twists the scripture around, but he quotes it. Our adversary is a wise, um, wise one that we're told to be careful of, uh, of our enemy, for he walks around like, what, a, ro- a roaring lion, and seeking, who can he take out? Who can he trip up? And what temptation can I throw in his way? How can I get them to stop? And all these things he tried to do to the Lord. And um, it says here, when the devil had ended every temptation. So he was tempted in everything. Think of all the temptations that you go through. The Lord was tempted in every single one of them. And in every single one of them, he was able to... um, uh, overcome and submit himself to the will of his of his father. Now it's interesting to me adding to and taking away from. Oh, how much time I got here? I'll go for it. All right, I will. Thanks. From here, he begins his ministry. After uh, this full-on attack by the enemy, he now goes and we'll be talking about uh, the Sabbath in Psalm 92. But one of the very first places he goes to is Nazareth, his hometown, where everybody knows him. In verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, um, it says it was his custom that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus had a custom of being in the sanctuary on the Sabbath. I think we should have our customs. I think we should uh, be like-minded and uh, prioritize our life around fellowship, the word of God, um, Bible study, prayer, and that's the pattern that the Lord laid out here. The problem was everybody knew him in Nazareth, and when he goes into the synagogue, um, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, which would have been a scroll. And what it says here is he opened the book and he found the place that it was written. In other words, he didn't just read it. He actually, he looked for something. He was looking for a place in the book of Isaiah. So actually it was Isaiah 61. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is different from Satan. Satan took away from the scripture. But here, Jesus is going to quote, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. 
period. Everybody see the period? Go back to Isaiah chapter 61 real quick. Some of you are familiar with this and have heard it before, but for those um, that are hearing it for the first time, Isaiah chapter 61 Verses 1 and 2, we read the same thing. Look at verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, not period, but comma. And, and when Jesus was in Nazareth, it says, Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendants, and sat down. And he said to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's interesting to me is that when you... The Lord is not taking away from Scripture. The very next thing that it says in, after the comma is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. That wasn't going to be fulfilled this day. And so he stopped. He stopped at the comma, closed the book, and he says this much of Isaiah 61 is going to be fulfilled, and you're watching it happen right here now today. He couldn't read the day of vengeance of our God because that goes into the great tribulation period. And that wasn't going to be fulfilled. So my point here is he's not taking away from the scripture. He's fulfilling it this much and now that will be fulfilled but that's still yet yet future. And uh, he says today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All right, let's go back to... um, Oh, let's go back to Psalm 91. We'll finish up this one. Judy and I, after a hard day of uh, still moving some boxes around and and, uh, containers as we're rearranging things, we're both poops. We went and sat on a couch, and I said, uh, I'm thinking about Sunday, and I'm thinking about these verses from uh, Psalm 91. And uh, I said, you know, the ones where it talks about the Lord giving charge over, over you and, and um, lest you dash your, your foot against the sun. And I completely misquoted the thing to her. And so what she did, she said, I said, that's in Psalm 92. And she says, no, that's Psalm 91. And I said, it is. And she says, yeah, you want to hear it? And uh, I said, yeah. So she begins with verse 1. And she didn't didn't have her Bible in front of her. And she quoted this whole psalm verbatim from memory and uh, put me to shame because she put it, (laughs) I said it was Psalm 92. I said, we're going to be in Psalm 92 on Sunday. And she says, not if you're quoting that one because that's Psalm 91. And she quoted the whole thing verbatim. I got out my Bible and I followed it and I thought, I'm pretty impressed. How many of you have seen uh, the book of Eli with uh, Denzel Washington? It's, uh, it's Hollywood's take on the, being in the tribulation and only one Bible remaining. And um, if you haven't seen it, uh, I was impressed by her ability to quote verbatim Psalm 91 from memory. And that's basically what the movie is about. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm not going to give it away. You're going to have to go and get it on your own. But I actually thought, I asked her if she had seen it, and she said no. So we went out and rented it, so that's what we watched last night. 
I said, I was talking to Lane today. I said, Lane, did we ever see that movie? He said, yeah. We went on a trip to Haiti when it just came out. We all went to the movie down in Miami and watched, don't you remember? And I says, I don't remember a whole lot these days. The memory just, uh, I said, did we really do it? Yeah, we did that about 2009 or something like that. But anyway, um, this is from Psalm 91. It is where we'll be on Sunday. Let's finish out verse 14 through 16. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. And he shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The Lord knows that we have feet of clay. He understands the temptations and trials that you go through. And the only safe place to be is in the shadow of of his wings, and that's what Psalm 91 is all about. All right, Psalm 92. Psalm 92 is a song that's written primarily about the Sabbath day. And we'll get into this. It's a completely different um, change of thought. And uh, it'll it'll deal with the Jewish Sabbath, and I'll talk a little bit about... um, Christians going back and attempting to keep part of the law, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. On an instrument of ten strings and on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sounds, For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works, and your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, and all the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But by my horn you have exalted, but my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies, and my ears. Hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. And they shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And speaking of the man as it closes up here, who is in the courts of the Lord, and because that is his place that he's in on a regular basis, even in his old age, he's going to bring forth fruit. And he's going to be used, and that's the whole idea of the psalm. It is a psalm 
that's dedicated specifically to the Sabbath day. All right, let's talk about the Sabbath. Exodus 20 is the fourth commandment, is to keep the Sabbath day as a day of rest. And uh, at this point, I'm going to go and take you to the New Testament, to the book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. All the early church were Jewish. Jesus would have been in the synagogue, as we read in Luke 4. It was his custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Then what happened is Gentiles started to come to the Lord, and they didn't have the same traditions and customs that the Jews did. This created a problem because as Gentiles now were becoming saved, Acts chapter 15 shows the first big powwow where they had to come down with a decision on just how far the Gentiles had to go with keeping Jewish tradition. And um, I'm going to talk my way through most of this, and it's going to work up to a letter, but let me just give you a little bit of a background. Verse 1, certain men came up from Judah and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. All right, now we have a problem. Uh, Not only were they telling they had to be circumcised, but they also, it says some of the Pharisees came, and they said they also must keep the law of Moses. Go to verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, one of my goals on Wednesday night is to try to keep you up with current doctrines that are creeping into the church that aren't biblical. One of the latest ones, um, some of my friends that aren't Calvary Chapel pastors, but are in ministry, are gravitating towards what we call um, keeping the law of the Sabbath. And actually saying, why don't we keep the commandments? Why don't we keep the fourth commandment? And um, churches are, are growing up with this doctrine that you have to keep the Sabbath day because it's the commandment. Well, if you're taking notes tonight, James 2 verse 10 says this. If, if you want to keep the law, it says you have to keep the whole law. You have to do it all. If you stumble in one point, then you're guilty of all of them. And so as we see this problem arising, that's what's happening in some churches today. They're going back to trying to keep the Sabbath because it's part of the commandments. What does the Bible have to say about it? Well, this lays it out. This argument here gives instructions. And it's at this point in verse 6 that Peter gets up and he explains the elders that came together to consider this matter. What are we going to do? We have a problem. And it's Peter, or um, so the apostles, let's just read it, verse 6, the So the apostles and the elders came together. And when there had been much dispute, it was Peter who rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles 
should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their faith, their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, and I like this, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We couldn't keep the commandments. And uh, why now would you take them and, and say that Gentiles have to do something that we ourselves couldn't do? And all of a sudden, you could hear a pin drop. At verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among, among the Gentiles. Then, what I'll point out in verse 13 is that um, of the apostles that was there, there seemed to be, James would have been um, the one with the responsibility to get up and make a statement. And I think that's important in any um, church, that there be leadership. And uh, there should be, um, in this case, James would have been the one who would have been the leader in his fellowship. And he said, men and brethren, listen to me. Uh, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them out a people for his name. For with the words of the prophets, agree it as it is written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down. I will rebuild its ruin and set it upright. And so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles... So he quotes from the Old Testament saying, the Gentiles who are called by my name, saying the Lord who does all these things. And um, he says, therefore, I'm going to make a decision. He heard the debate. He heard both sides of the argument. He listened to, to Paul. He listened to Barnabas. And then he says, therefore, I judge. And here we have Uh, James getting up after hearing all sides of the debate and the argument. He says, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, don't lay this on them. They don't have to keep the, the Sabbath. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. If you're going to do that, like it says in James, you have to do it all. You have to do the whole thing. And so this is the letter that they wrote back um, concerning, uh, but we'll write to them. And here, here, are the, here are the guidelines, things that no Christian would, be, would think about getting involved with. But to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. And so we're talking about adultery. We're talking about fornication. Christians aren't involved with such things. And if they are, well, then action should be taken, like Paul had to do in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was, um, uh, everybody in the church knew there was a, a hanky-panky going on between um, a man and uh, a woman that was there. Nobody was dealing with it. So Paul said he's got to go, because it's a little leaven leavens a whole lump. But he dealt with it, wrote him a letter, says, I'm not there, but even though I'm not there, here's, here's my judgment. Take such a one and turn them over 
to the devil and pray for the destruction of his flesh so his soul will be saved. This guy thought he could actually be involved in a continual sexual relationship outside of marriage and still be in fellowship. And Paul says, no way. And um, my point there is, uh, Paul made a decision. Here, James is making it. And he says, there's just things, obviously, Christians don't do. And here, keep yourself from those sort of things. And so they wrote the letter, verse 23. And uh, he said, it seemed good to us being um, in one accord, verse 25, that um, to send chosen men to you, beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by our mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. God bless you guys. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. And um, it put to rest this whole idea that uh, you have to have a Sabbath. Now, turn with me to, um, uh, let's see, let's go to uh, Galatians 2. Take this a step farther. Let's just talk about uh, the church and the Sabbath in Galatians 2. Picking it up in verse 16. It's either all or nothing with grace and works versus the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we read in Galatians 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law, that I might be alive to God. I have been crucified with Christ, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live isn't under the law, which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died in vain. To say to a person that you have to keep the fourth commandment and keep the Sabbath, well, that the Bible teaches you have to keep all ten of them, and you have to keep it perfectly. It's either one or the other. Somebody want to give me a name on that? And the confusion is people simply have gotten away from what the, the Scriptures teach. This was something that they worked out in the first church council in Acts 15. This is going to be all by grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ, or you have to live a perfect life. All right, what did Jesus have to say about the Sabbath? Let's go to John 
15, John chapter 5. In John 5, what a great story this is. A man who was uh, paralyzed, picking it up. It's the pool of Bethesda, verse 2. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in there lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And there was a certain man who had been there for 38 years. Now just think about that. 38 years, how long that's been, where he, he was in this condition. And Jesus saw him there, and he knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time. And he says, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered, he says, well, sir, I have no man to put me down into the pool when the water is stirred. But by the time I get up and get down there, somebody always beats me to it. And it's been going on for 38 years. And so the Lord said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, and he took up his walk, up his bed and walked. And then it says, and that day was the Sabbath. So here the Lord is, is working, and he's working on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees heard about it, and the Jews said, therefore, to him that was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Uh, there was no, <laughs> they would have known this guy. They would have known this guy had been there for 38 years. There was no rejoicing that he was healed. This miracle had happened. There was no gratitude. All they could do is be legalistic and uh, sarcastic and said, this is a Sabbath day. You can't be carrying your bed. But he answered them and said <clears throat> to, um, to them, Take up your bed and walk. And they ask him, well, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn himself in the multitude. And uh, then the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, and here's the point, for this reason, the Jews sought to persecute Jesus. Why? And to kill him. Why? Because he had done this thing on the Sabbath day. The church is not under the obligation of um, keeping the Sabbath. Here, they want to kill Jesus because he did a work that, that was a good work on the Sabbath. And they were so beside themselves that they actually, at this point, decide that Jesus has to be killed because he's breaking the Sabbath law. We could get into other stories that talk about um, the Lord saying that he was the Lord of the Sabbath and he could, he could um, heal if he chose because he's even the Lord of, of the Sabbath. All right, let's go back to um, Psalm 92 and make our way into Psalm 93. Psalm 92 
is a psalm written for the Sabbath. The last one we're going to go through tonight is Psalm 93. It's only five verses long, and it is a prophecy. One of the things that, again, as we make our way through the Psalms, is we realize that when they were written, uh, this is future tense, and uh, this is a brief psalm, only five verses long. This little psalm, tucked between 92 and 94, is a song of sheer praise because the king is reigning. It's the millennial kingdom psalm and speaks of the Lord who has come to reign gloriously over the earth. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, and he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength, and surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from on old, and you are from everlasting. This is clearly future, and um, it points to the 1,000-year kingdom reign. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voices. The floods have lifted up their waves. The Lord is on high and is mighty than the noise of many waters and the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adores your house, O Lord. And then it says forever. This psalm here is future. And um, what I want to do is tie it into a promise that uh, the Lord made to the churches in Revelation. So as we begin to wind up tonight, I want to go uh, a thousand years into the future. So let's go to Revelation 20, and we'll show what we have in view here. Most mainline Protestant churches, mainline Roman Catholicism, do not take the book of Revelation literally. And so when they get to the millennial reign, they say, well, this either all was fulfilled in 70 AD or it has um, spiritual application and they don't take it literally. Well, the Psalms, and Psalm 93 in particular, is all about the 1,000-year millennial reign. And let's pick it up and um, show in the New Testament book of Revelation where it talks about a literal thousand years. I guess we have to go back to um, uh, actually verse 1 of chapter 20. Satan is bound for a thousand years. So this would be immediately after uh, the tribulation and uh, right before the beginning of the thousand-year reign. And that's what Psalm 93 is referring to. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for 1,000 years. There's literally a 1,000-year reign. He cast him into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up and put a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. All right, we started our study tonight in Psalm 91, talking about spiritual warfare. 
Baby Christians, what's the first thing that happens when you hear the word of God? The devil comes, he tries to take the word out of your heart, lest you would believe and be saved. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, who's there after he's 40 days in the wilderness? The devil. Tempts him for 40 days to get him to stop from doing his mission. Did it stop him? No. Immediately goes to his hometown of Nazareth, gets up, opens the book of Isaiah, and stops and he says, you're, you're watching today, this being fulfilled in your sight. He closes the book. And we have him continuing his ministry. Now, he has come back and he is going to reclaim which he rightfully purchased on the cross. And we have now the beginning in verse four. John says, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. These would be millennial saints or tribulation saints. They did not worship the beast or his image, nor had they received his mark on their forehead or on their hand. And it says, they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Gang, I take that literally. That's what you have to look forward to. Just hold, hold this here. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the 1,000 years was finished. This is the first resurrection. Keep your finger here because we're gonna come back and finish it, but go to um, Revelation 2. I'm going to have to find it real quick here. Uh, It's to the message to Smyrna. In each one of the seven letters to the seven churches, there's a different promise. Every church is given a promise, and all the promises apply to all the churches. So you're sitting here tonight in Calvary Chapel of Appleton. Here's the promise that the Lord has given for you and for me. Verse 11. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who overcomes, well, what does that mean? Well, he that, like the Lord, continues on in fellowship, breaking of bread, the apostles' doctrine, and so on and so forth, and you keep your faith in Christ apart from works, then you are an overcomer, and keeping that faith until the end. And don't let the fowler trip you up. Don't let him cause you to turn around. Don't cause him to think that there's an answer somewhere else other than the gospel. And then the promise, he who does overcome, notice, shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, now let's go back to Revelation 20. The second death. What is the second death? It says in verse five, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. So what is the second death? But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. What is the second death? Well, the second death is people who have died once in this world, will be resurrected after the thousand years and they will have to stand before the great white throne judgment. Let's go to verse 11. And uh, verse verse 14 explains what the second death is. 
Then I saw a great white throne. This is going to be at the very end now of the thousand-year reign. There will be people who um, were forced to live a righteous life. But before we enter into eternity, the Lord once again gives another option if you choose not to be under his lordship. That's why Satan is released after the thousand years. Then after um, that Satan is finally, in verse 10, cast into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now the great white throne judgment after the thousand years. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. Notice it's plural, not just one book, but books. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And it says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the book. This should cause every non-believer to tremble. Because every impure thought, every lie you ever told, every sin you ever committed is, has been documented, has been written down. Things you thought nobody would ever know about is all laid out. What, what was I listening to? Um, there's these smart TVs that they've just come out with. And they say you gotta be careful because you can talk to the TV and it'll, it'll, it'll listen to you and it'll do what you tell it to do because that's why it's smart, I guess. But it says, and also when you're talking, it might be downloading more information than you want it to have. In other words, it could be picking up private conversations that you might be having with your wife, or maybe even an argument with your wife. <laughs> In other words, that is all being, that technology is out there for that to happen today. Now just think about it. If we have the technology to download everything that we're, Speaking, how much more our Heavenly Father who created us and knows everything that we've ever done has all been documented. And there's going to come that day when the things from the age of accountability on, which I think is somewhere around 13, they all have to give an account. The books were opened and they were judged by the things that were written in the book. The See, gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to their works. Let's get back to the big debate in Acts 15. What are we going to put on Christians? Well, if you're going to have them keep the Ten Commandments, then they have to do it all right. If they, if they break just one commandment, they're guilty of all of them. So, it's either by works or by faith, and you can't have it either way. Good time for an amen. It's either works, it's either all Jesus, either Jesus finished it all on the cross to tell us that it is finished, or it's your works. Now, if you want to go with the works, know that every one of them has been written down. Every single one has been documented, and when Judgment Day comes, and they want to keep the law, then they're going to have to have a perfect record. And what the Lord is basically going to show them is nobody's lived the perfect life except one person. When Jesus said, don't think I've come um, to break the law, I have not. I've come to fulfill it, not break it. And he lived all the commandments. 
every temptation that our adversary throws at us where we fail, Jesus passed with flying colors. And when he was misquoted the scriptures, he, he put it in the right context and quoted it correctly. Well, let's get back to what the second death is, is then. After this, verse 13, they were judged each one according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And here's the explanation. This is the second death. What did Jesus promise the church of Smyrna? They were a persecuted church. He says, but if you hang in there and um, don't deny me, he says, um, I will keep you from the second death. And everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Psalm 93, and um, I don't dare go into Psalm 94, and I'm going to do the unthinkable. Instead of five after, it is actually five minutes to eight. Miracles really still do happen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, as we make our way through your word, we see that the devil knows Psalm 91, and he even quoted it. We thank you, Lord, that um, our defense against our adversary is understanding the scriptures in the context that you have men. And we thank you, Lord, that you overcame him by quoting the scriptures correctly. Lord, as we get into Psalm 92 and we see the the keeping of the Sabbath that was part of Jewish custom until you came, we thank you that you've set us free from the law because if they couldn't do it, neither can we. And we fail so often so many times, Lord, we want to do the right things, but we fall so short that we're just grateful believers tonight for your grace, that it's all by faith in you, apart from works. And... Um, Lord, I pray for those that are getting caught up in this um, new trend into the church, trying to keep the Christian Sabbath. It's an oxymoron. And I pray for those that they would not be deceived and have that put upon them. And then, Lord, we thank you for the promises that you've given to us, that there really is coming a judgment day. And um, if anybody is outside of you, he's going to have to stand before you someday in the great way throw in judgment. And we're just grateful that we're in the judgment seat of Christ and not this one. So Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And I just pray that um, you'd go before us the rest of this week. I pray you get the internet up and running so that we'll have it for Sunday. But bless your people for coming out tonight. And we thank you for your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.